Yeah, well, okay, so Justin is an obvious um, Florida fan, and yes, they did beat Tennessee. It's tough being a Tennessee fan. You talk about sanctifying grace that you need just about every week of your life. I, uh, but I did shoot a gator and took special pride that I shot a gator in Florida. So at least one volunteer beat a gator that week. So that was, uh, that was good. Justin, thank you for allowing me to be part of this conference. I feel so humbled to be here for so many reasons. First of all, I know a lot of men in this, in this room who I actually would prefer listening to rather than preaching myself. And I say that without any um, degree of being uh, evangelistic, you know, extra, ex, ex, exaggerating as evangelical. But I'm very, very honored to be here and to be able to open God's Word. Justin is a, a dear friend. He and Jana and their children are uh, treasures to me and my wife. And it's, uh, he may have been a Timothy one day to me, but he is certainly a Paul to me now. And very thankful that he's here in Columbus, Nebraska. Um, Thanks for singing that song. Did you know that was my favorite hymn? Man, that I love. The, the, uh, Charles Wesley wrote that hymn in 1736. And in my humble estimation, no words outside of the canon of Scripture have ever been penned as profound as that chorus. Imagine if you had walked into a service for the first time or if you brought a visitor for the first time to a church service and we sang that song. We sang the third verse, which is one of my favorite too, on the angels' uh, learning of, of the grace of God. Which is, There's about four verses we don't normally sing in that song. I love singing that one. But imagine if you heard that song for the first time with no reference to Christ, your past and your knowledge base, and you sang that chorus. What kind of religion sings Amazing love, how can it be, think about this, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. If you ever want a gospel opening, just say the words of that lyric and say, what do you think about that? No other religion sings that. No other religion boasts in that. I love the lyrics to that song so, so very much. Well, I, it's come to my uh, task again to follow Dr. Albert Moeller. So let's just close in prayer. Okay, that's... Uh, Justin, why did we do this? He, they had, we had to change the schedule. I was supposed to go first this morning. Dr. Moeller had to go catch a flight. And I said, really? I'm going to have to finish that up. Now, th- th- my, this has been my lot in life for 16 years... I preached second service at Grace Church, which meant that for 16 years, people came and sat to hear me preach who had just heard John MacArthur. Yeah, try that on for size. Yeah. And are most of them holding a John MacArthur study Bible. Yeah, we're not sure if you got that right, Holland. We got the real answer right here. <laughs> Add to that, now I'm in a, I'm in a place where the former pastor's just up the road a few hours, and they said, well, that's not what Rod said. So, um, thanks, Rod. Really appreciate that. Again, let's close in prayer again. So, Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus. To the book of Titus. I have a 16-year-old son who has been working at Chick-fil-A for the better part of a year. Praise God for Chick-fil-A. Praise God for Chick-fil-A. It's the peanut oil. That's what really makes the difference. I love 
Chick-fil-A. Grew up on Chick-fil-A, and I remember when they first came to California, I stood in line for an hour to get my first chicken sandwich there. I love Chick-fil-A. Luke's working there, which brings me no benefit. I get no discount. I get nothing. Um, yeah, I've even taught him. He says, well, Dad, I can give you my discount. You come in. No, you want to be a man of integrity. And I've regretted that ever since. But um, <laughs> he's worked really hard, and he's saved up uh, some money. And he just bought, two weeks ago, his first vehicle. And uh, he bought a 1999 Jeep, which is, if you know anything about Jeeps... I, how many Jeep guys do you have? Are there Jeep people? Do you just, yeah, think. We, we understand each other. There's Jeep people. And uh, it's a straight six. That was the engine we wanted. Uh, it's 1999 with 93,000 miles. That's just 7,000 miles and change a year. Really good shape. Body's in perfect condition. And he bought this Jeep. And um, he knows a little bit about Jeep. But what's been very interesting to me is to watch him over the last two weeks. Now that he owns this Jeep... He is studying, he's read the owner's manual, he's reading online, he's become a part of this uh, um, uh, forum where he can ask questions, and, and now he's telling people answers. He's become an expert on this Jeep Sahara, this Wrangler. I, I've been so encouraged, and it's been fun to watch him develop a passion for his Jeep because he cares so much about it. He can tell you now how to diagnose and track down whether the Jeep is doing well or not. He already knows what it sounds like. He already knows how, what it sounds like in first gear, and second, and third, and fourth, and fifth. He knows what it sounds like when he's sitting on a hill, and he goes into reverse, and it, he, he, he is an expert on that. And the reason he's an expert on that Jeep is because it's his, and he loves it. It's been fun to watch, just this passion develop. My concern is that the passion that he has for the Jeep is such a parallel to what should be for you and me in our understanding of the church. That we understand it. We know what it sounds like when it's healthy. We want to know what it feels like when it's unhealthy. We have our finger on the pulse. We understand how to diagnose the sounds when it, something's wrong and to praise the good things when something's right? Are we ecclesiologists, as we said yesterday? Do we have an understanding of the church that is sufficient enough so that we can help correct when we're off track? Now, that's not only for the leaders. That should be for everyone as well. In the book of Titus, we have a really interesting piece of Scripture. Interesting from the standpoint of it says what it's about in a way that no other epistle or portion of Scripture does. In verse 5, Paul, writing to Titus, who's on the Isle of Crete, says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. Stop right there. The purpose of this little epistle is for Paul to instruct Titus on how to set order in the church, how to develop the healthy parameters of the church, how to inculcate them with an ecclesiology that will become self-diagnostic in the church so that the people there in leadership and in the pew would be able to, to tell what sounds indicate something's wrong and to tell what sounds indicate that everything's right. We live in a culture in which... Self-diagnosis in the church is almost unheard of. 
If someone self-diagnoses the church and the health and they don't like it, they typically complain and leave. If someone sits in the church and they don't diagnose at all, they end up being lulled like a frog in a kettle into oblivion. If the leaders in the church aren't self-diagnosing the church, then who is? How do you diagnose the health of a church? That's why Titus receives this letter from Paul to know how to set in order the things in the church. That set in order means actually it's used of, of a broken bone that you bring it back into right proportion with, with itself. What I want to do is go through this whole epistle in three chapters at a lightning fast pace to get such altitude that we can look at the church and be able to say, this is good, this is not, this is what we need to do, this is what we need to stop doing, and have handlebars on really understanding our own ecclesiology. So what we're going to do is just follow a very fast-paced outline through this book. It's kind of a way to send us away with our marching orders on looking at ourselves and our ministry in the church. How do you define a well-ordered church? Well, we find nine, at least, nine characteristics of a healthy church in this epistle. Now, I've taught homiletics. You're not supposed to have that many points. We're going to have that many points today. Is that okay? Nine characteristics of a healthy church. And what I want you to do is apply these to your own understanding of the church, but also apply these to your own understanding of your contribution to these characteristics. Nine characteristics of a healthy church. The first is in verses 1 to 4. It has an authentic faith. It has an authentic faith. The members are are truly saved, in other words. They understand their salvation. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant or a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness... In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation which with, with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God and our Savior to Titus, my true child in the faith, a common faith, the same faith, grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Very interesting. I've heard a lot of uh, new pastors talk about starting with the book of Titus. Great place to start if you come into a, a new pastoring. Except for the fact that in the, um, in the very first verse of Titus chapter 1, you meet what may be the most controversial issue in the church today, and that's that of election, the choosing of God, predestination. And you hear these young, budding seminary and seminoids, they graduate, they're going to go, we're going to set the church in order, we're going to start with Titus. And I say, hey, have at it, Tiger. But you know what you're going to deal with in the first verse? Is that really what you want to do? You want to be a Calvinazi? What do you want to do here? How are you going to, how are you going to make this happen? Authentic faith, though, has to embrace God's choosing, does it not? Isn't that in the Bible? Isn't the word election in the Bible? Isn't the word predestination in the Bible? Authentic faith is born in the mind and heart of God because only God awakens the dead from Ephesians 2. Only God elects people to salvation. 
Now you say, wow, that sounds awfully Calvinistic. Did we drive all the way out to Columbus, that booming metropolis of Columbus, Nebraska, to hear you talk about Calvinistic theology? Let's forget Calvin for a second. Let's see what Jesus said. Would you turn back to John chapter 6 for a moment? John chapter 6, to me, is the most definitive understanding of the doctrine of predestination and election anywhere in the Scripture, and it's from the very lips of our Savior. Because people always say, well, if God elects, where's human responsibility? Where's free will? Where's the choice of man? Do we have to stop singing, I have decided to follow Jesus? No turning back. No turning back. Can we stop? I mean, what do we do with our decision? This is beautiful. Jesus just crashes and wrecks theological constructs with, without any apology and without any footnotes. He's speaking to a group of people after he's come across the lake on the water. Uh, the people gather and he's preaching. Just, I want you to bounce back and forth with me on, on God's elective choosing purposes and man's responsibility and how Jesus deals with these two. Look at verse 29, John 6. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Wow. The work of God is our belief. I've heard people say, well, believing is a work, so works save you. How does that work? No, no. Jesus says that if you believe, God made you believe. Pretty clear, isn't it? It's the work of God. Go down to verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Time out. Belief is the defining feature of the elective parameters of God. Do you believe? Not not do you have the secret elected handshake. It's do you believe? Will you believe? There's no evangelistic expression in the New Testament which says, all right, everybody, make sure that you're elect to see if you're if you're okay to come in the kingdom. Yeah, Peter says be sure of your election, but that's after salvation, not to see if you get into salvation. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me, where's, where's salvation coming from? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me will certainly not cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, that I will lose nothing but raise up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes will have eternal life. Believe, only God makes you believe. Know that only God makes you believe, but believe. The responsibility is to believe. He goes on, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's clear enough, isn't it? We don't believe in Thomistic theology. Thomistic comes from the word Thomas, Thomas Aquinas, who is a Catholic, Catholic theologian who basically said that man has the moral neutral, neutrality to stand in the middle and choose God or Satan, good or bad, heaven or hell. He is the final arbitrator of his own destiny. He has ultimate free will. Would you just please be careful with the term free will? It's not, even if you have trouble with election, it's not your best friend. Romans 6 says that we're slaves, but not to our free will. We're slaves to sin. We don't have moral neutrality, in other words. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He doesn't say, make sure you're elect. He said, believe, just believe. Verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. I love this. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
He didn't say the elect. If anyone does, are you sensing some theological schizophrenia here? So what is it, Jesus? Is it all God or do we have the responsibility to believe? And he says, yeah, yeah, you got it. Oh, it gets even more. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. Verse 64, verse 63, then verse 64. But there are some of you here who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Brings Judas into the equation. Verse 65, for he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now, do you think our generation is the first to ever have struggle with this? Look at verse 66. As a result of this, hermeneutics demands that we go with the law of nearest antecedent. You know what that means? The this has to refer to what's closest to it. What is the this? Jesus' statement that only the Father draws. As a result of Jesus speaking on predestination, you could say, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. We're not going to follow this. Calvinist. So Jesus said to the twelve, hey guys, you want to go away also? I love Peter. Peter says, Lord, whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered. I mean, Peter says, we believed. We, we made that choice. And then Jesus says in verse 70, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet, yet one of you is the devil. Now, some people say, well, they just chose to be his disciple. That, that's not true. If you go back and look at the early part of John, at least half of the disciples were chosen by Jesus. He went up to a tree and said, hey, come and follow me. They didn't all just say, oh, I want a mentor today. He's talking about divine election here. What's the purpose of going through the exercise in John 6? There is human responsibility and there is divine election and the, the church has wrestled with putting those two together for the better part of 2,000 years without a conclusive answer. Don't think you'll find one. The Bible says hold to the responsibility to believe and hold to the fact that only the elect will believe and let God work it out. What people do is they say, I, I, I want to believe one and not the other. Well, that's why we have this debate today. Paul tells Titus, just as the... As a little footnote, for the faith of those chosen of God. The faith, the believing of those chosen by God. He puts them both together at the same time as well. Authentic faith, though, has some elements. It hopes in eternal life. It also hopes in the character of God. He can't lie. He promised it long ago. It was manifested at the proper time. Jesus wasn't born in the day of the iPad and FaceTime. And CNN and Fox. Jesus was born at the perfect time where the Bible would be written in Greek. He would speak in Aramaic and Hebrew. It was perfect. Everything was lined up at exactly the right time. In his word, it manifested in his word, in the proclamation which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. This, God is a verbal God. He's not a visual God. He left us a book and not a video. Titus, my true child, in common faith. He says this faith has to be authentic. It was born in the heart and elective, divine, predestinated purposes of God, manifested by our belief and our faith in God's demonstration of the gospel. And it's true, it's authentic, based on the character of God who cannot lie. 
A healthy church understands God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and lives with that tension. A second characteristic is qualified leadership. Qualified leadership. You know this very well. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders. The first, first practical application of ordering a church is qualified leadership. It's the very first thing he describes in Titus' admonition to set the church in order. Namely, if any man is above reproach, that's the umbrella. Every other characteristic falls under that issue, being above reproach, having a life that's beyond someone saying, you're not qualified. Husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, someone who's not known as being... A flirtatious, multiple, emotively attached man. You love your wife. Having children who believe, there's so much controversy on this. It comes with the, if I can talk to our pastoral friends for a second, this comes down to the semantic domain of pistuo and the word group that means faith or faithful. There's a lot of debate on this. Let me just tell you that I think this is probably more inclined to say children who are under control than children who have a believing faith, and that's qualified by the next phrase, which says, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Some believe it means that they have to be Christians. challenge with that is that a, 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 a man with younger children then couldn't be an elder because his children aren't Christians yet. So there's a lot of problems with that, but we're not here to, to, to decide that one today. Overseer must be above reproach, though. That's the issue. Then he goes on. Um, God's steward. In other words, you're speaking on behalf of God, ministering on behalf of God, not setting yourself up as someone to be willed, uh, not, not, um, uh, not setting yourself up to be worshipped, which comes into the next phrase, not self-willed. You submit to a group of elders. You're not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious. You don't slide into second on the church softball league, stand up and punch the guy in the nose for tagging you high. Not fond of sort of gain. He's not in this for money, but hospitable. By the way, the word hospitable means love of strangers. Sometimes we say, oh, he's so hospitable because all of his friends come and stay with him. This is actually a word that means he loves for people he doesn't know to stay with him. Someone's in town and a believer, you can stay at my house. Very interesting word. Loving what is good. Morally above approach. Sensible, he does what's appropriate, it makes sense. Just, he has a sense of Proverbs 18. He doesn't believe a side before hearing both sides. He's devout, self-controlled. Means having self, uh, uh, the, the ability to regulate yourself, your schedule, your passions, your priorities. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. Boy, we could stop right there and, and speak all day. This is an expositor. It's a man who pulls his theology out of the scriptures. He's regulated by the two covers of his Bible. So that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. It ought to be that when the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and the, the people with the white shirts and the tie knock on your pastor's door, that's not a good day for them. He's able, and when they come to our house all the time, and, and um, we, uh, I, I developed, I, I've changed my strategy on that. I used to just send them away and, you know, shake the dust off your feet. And, and now I try to keep, I invite them in, give them tea, coffee, keep them as long as they can because I don't want them to go to my neighbor. 
I, they're pretty, it's pretty safe in my house. And you can always tell because there's always the trainer and the, the trainee. Always go after the trainee. It really makes for a long conversation for those guys later. <laughs> you hold a doctrine. You know how to defend doctrine. You get it. Qualified leadership. It is... It is a travesty today that churches will compromise on the qualification of their leadership in order to get guys they appreciate and like who may be good in the business world or good in some other category of their life and they think they ought to lead the church. Qualified leadership is what will make the church or ruin the church. And please remember this. Whether it's an elder or deacon, it's way easier to wait on putting a man on than it is to get him off the board. Be patient. This is just a manual on um, church rule. These simple verses. Qualified leadership. A third characteristic is converted membership. That sounds weird, doesn't it? A converted membership. The people who are a part of your church are actually saved Verse 10, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, the Jews who are in attacking the church, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain, back to their self-willed. One of them themselves, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. I love, love what Paul says, oh, this testimony is true. They are that. And for this reason, because the culture's like that, watch this. Reprove them severely so they may be sound in the faith. Stop right there a second. The greatest challenge of our generation is the worldliness of the church. It's by bringing ideas and moral standards of the world into the church I'm not talking about a guy who preaches without a tie and his shirt untucked. I don't do that. My dad told me to tuck my shirt in. What I'm talking about is worldly standards where people come into the church and it's no different than the world. You say, what are you talking about? Are you talking about music? Maybe, sometimes, maybe not. Mostly moral standards. Where people come in and say, these people act, think, talk just like the people at my work. The church should be set apart. And nowhere, nowhere is that more important than when you come together on Sundays, on Wednesdays, on Sunday night, that that's a haven, that's a distinction from what happens in the culture. Isn't it interesting to know that, you know, our culture isn't that much different than what was going on at Crete? I mean, do you think Satan woke up like maybe in 19, I don't know, 90 and said, let's get really bad. No, there's nothing new under the sun. Paul says, reprove them. Get in their kitchen. Is he talking about the world? No, he's talking about people in the church who are acting worldly. Get in their kitchen. Tell them to stop. The Greek is really just reprove them severely. Hyper-reprove them. Massively reprove them. Don't let this be a small little smack on the wrist. This needs to be a punch in the face. Not literally. Can't be pugnacious. Remember that. 
Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. We're not dealing with superstition. We're dealing with biblical authority here. Then he says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are, under, who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. In other words, their, their speech, their conduct, their joking is always off color. It always leans toward the sinful side and not toward the holy side. Now here's what's interesting. Who are we talking about here? It's a little confusing so far. Are we talking about the culture or are we talking about the church? Look at what he says in verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. What he's saying is the church membership ought to be converted. They say they know God, but they don't know the gospel. They may know the gospel intellectually. They're not living the gospel. Church should be set in order by having a redeemed membership. That seems so foreign to some people's thinking. As we said yesterday, the church is for believers. It's not for unbelievers. Yes, an unbeliever should feel, feel welcome, but they should feel very left out. They're not enjoying something that we enjoy. They don't love the one that we love. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their deeds. Can I just say it? And I know I work for John MacArthur, but forget John MacArthur for a second. This is Lordship Salvation. You know, in the book of Acts, Jesus is called Lord 92 times. And he's called Savior twice. I've heard someone say, well, you accept him as Savior and make him your Lord. That's not biblical language. You bow the knee to him as Lord, and then he becomes your Savior that's the way it works. Paul's saying they profess to know God. They, they have a, a public testimony they know God, but they don't. This is Matthew 7. Didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. A converted membership. Titus, if you're going to have an ordered church, then the people in the pews ought to be saved. It's just amazing. We have to say that here. It's amazing that Paul had to tell Titus that then. Number four, biblical authority. A healthy church is characterized by submitting to biblical authority. It's just in one verse, verse one of chapter two. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Now we need to extrapolate from that. Where would he get the things fitting for sound doctrine? Well, he would get them from the Old Testament canon, which was already in his possession. But he would also get them from the epistles and those that would be ultimately canonized in the New Testament and have biblical binding authority. Speak these things fitting for sound doctrine. The church must be a, an absolute reservoir of sound doctrine. Can I say it this way? Church should be deep. Church should make you think. Church should make you, expository preaching should make you say, I don't know if I really understand that. We're not telling, I grew up in a church, I hate to tell you this, I grew up in a church that was basically a man who I think meant well, but was largely untrained, and he would read a Bible verse, tell six stories, and he would shake hands with them on the way out the door. That was church. Then I, part of my testimony of even coming in the ministry, is someone gave me a, a set of 12 tapes, the believer's armor from, from uh, Ephesians chapter 6 from John MacArthur. And um, 
I was really discouraged one night and put those in and listened to them. And this is embarrassing, but I remember actually at the end of those 12 tapes saying, what a great idea. What a great idea that during the sermon time, like to explain Bible verses, what a novel, what a great idea. That is so cool. I mean, that would be a good reason to go to church and listen. I'd never heard of that before. You open the Bible and explain the Bible. I praise God for this church that has an expositor that stands in this sacred real estate every week. Biblical authority. You speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. We define doctrine from the pulpit. We define doctrine with our, our doctrinal statements. We define doctrine from our church. We want to increasingly be tighter on our doctrine, more definitive in our doctrine, not looser in our doctrine. We are in the process of, of studying our own doctrinal statement and tweaking some things and making it tighter at Mission Road Bible Church. We're not changing anything, Rod. I promise you that. But what we're finding is we want to be more and more and more definitive this year than next year, next year than this year, and the following decade than this decade. Because churches tend to slip from what they really believe until they, unless they continually study what they really do believe. And we're also going to change our, the, the name from, it's our doctrinal statement, but we want to call it what we teach. Because here's what we're discovering. You get a new believer who wants to join the church and you give him his doctrinal statement and say, do you believe this? It's a little disingenuous for him to say, yes, I believe all of that. Well, you want him to and you hope he would or she would, but you gotta allow for some progress for them to, to learn that stuff. This is what we teach. This is what we believe. This is what our, our doctrinal statement is, but we want you to learn this. We wanna teach you this over time. You don't read it one time and then sign off. Don't you wish absorption of doctrine were that easy? I read the doctrinal statement. I'm done. Well, it's a little... This, um, this verb in speak is in the present tense. Be in the process of always speaking things fitting for sound doctrine. You don't do it once and then you're done. Biblical authority. Number five, intentional discipleship. Another mark of a healthy church. Intentional discipleship. Older men, look at verse two. Older men, verse three, older women. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. They're to be spiritually mature men, godly men, older women. Likewise, it takes the the characteristics he just gave to the men and adds those to the women and goes further. Likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to, watch this, love their husbands. Why does he say that? The word for love there is not agape, it's phileo. It, it means you teach the women to like their husbands. <laughs> he doesn't tell the men to like their wives because they're more likable. Women have to be taught to like men. <laughs> Ask my wife. Love their children. Actually, it's the same word. Teach them to love slash like slash have a familial relationship with them to, to enjoy them. Children are, are cute, but they can be really hard to like. Children are messy things. And you think that once they stop being messy when they're four, that it gets easier when they're teens? Yeah, let me talk to you afterwards about that one. 
to be sensible, to be pure. There's the moral purity. Workers at home, I love that. Workers at home, it doesn't mean that they can never have a job outside the home, but it means it has to be only after they have fulfilled their responsibilities at home. I think the greatest responsibility, the greatest privilege on the earth is to be a home worker mom. It's higher than any president, higher than any preacher. I mean, come on. We know that intuitively. The, the, the kid is taught by his dad to play football, throw the football. Here's a spiral. Here's how to spike the ball. Here's it. Teaches, teaches, teaches. The kid gets in the NFL, scores a touchdown, looks on the camera and says, Hi, Mom. <laughs> Dad's going, Really? Being subject to their own husbands, there's the submission word, the S word. Why? What is at stake? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, here's, here's the thing. Older women are to teach younger women to do this and to be this. Intentionally discipling younger women to do and to be this kind of woman. Older men are to intentionally disciple younger men. Now, here's what's interesting. There are like seven characteristics that an older woman is to teach to a younger woman. Here's where it comes down to brass tacks. Older men are to urge young men, here's verse 6, to be sensible. One characteristic. I talked to my wife about this. I said, what, how do you, what do you make of this? She says, we have greater capacity. We had a long list. This is like teaching my four-year-old. Okay, one, one eye contact, one, one thing. Do what makes sense. If you got that, the world's going to be right. You can also add to that. He, he instructs Titus personally. He says, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, purity, and doctrine. He know what you believe. You teach what you know. You're dignified. You know how to act appropriate in any situation. You're sound in speech. What from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, which is beyond reproach. Isn't that amazing? If you can control your tongue, you're beyond reproach. How instructive is that? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When Isaiah ha- comes to the point where, where uh, he's purified by the cherubim, takes the coal and touches him Where? Now I'm, I'm a man of, how does he identify his own depravity? I'm a man of unclean lips. Makes sense that he would say that. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. That's above reproach. Urge the bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything. And we're still in the category of discipleship. Well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so they will adorn the doctrine of God and our Savior in comprehensive, in every Respect for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. Look at this discipleship that's supposed to take place and bloom into these things. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our glory, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Just a little footnote there. Where is the preaching about the second coming of Christ? Do you believe he's coming back? Pastor, do you believe he's coming back? Do you tell people? Do you encourage them with that? Do you warn them of that? We're looking for that. Shouldn't our waking thoughts be, I hope today. I hope today. Or have we just been lulled into, 
what the pagans say in 2, Timothy, 2 Peter 3. Ah, oh, nah, it's uniformitarianism. It's, everything's just going to keep going like it was. Sun rose yesterday, it'll raise tomorrow. Jesus isn't coming back in my lifetime. I remember going up, growing up in my little Baptist church hearing 1948, 1947. Now the Jews are back in the land. Now Jesus can return. Can I tell you, Israel could be blown off the face of the map tomorrow, and I hope it's not, and that would not change one date in God's calendar of his return. Not one. Everything is ready for the coming of the Lord. Do you think Paul was lying when he said, look forward to the coming of the Lord in their generation, and we have to wait for certain things to line up? I hope, I hope it would be great if he came back today, especially on my four-and-a-half-hour drive back to Kansas City. Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We could go into the Greek on that. It's the affirmation of the deity of Christ right there and a couple of prepositions. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. There's lordship again. We're moving away from our pagan nature into holiness. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Wow. Discipleship comes from the pulpit in biblical authority. Discipleship comes from the older, mature, discipling the younger, less mature with biblical authority. I wish we had more time to just to talk about discipleship. Every Christian ought to be, say, be able to say, here's who I'm discipling, and here's who's discipling me in some category, in some measure. Who's pouring into you? Who are you pouring into? Intentional discipleship. It's a command to perpetuate gospel truth. Number six, a commendable testimony. A commendable testimony. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. You have a good reputation in the community. People look at you and say, you live differently than others. A healthy church has a membership that goes out into the world and acts like this. We're subject to rulers. We're good employees. We're good citizens. Listen, I, I, I have some important relationships in my life. And I, I don't want to sound cocky or as, um, as um, Shaquille O'Neal says, you know, I don't mean as cockily. Is that a word? Well, if Shaquille said it, it's a word. I, so he's a big guy. I'll let him have that. <laughs> but I, because of some, a, a relationship I have with a, with a very special person, I hate to unveil this in Columbus, Nebraska, but I actually know exactly who's going to win the presidential election. I know. I know you want to know. I'll go ahead and tell you. The man God chooses. People are like, whoa. Do you know the size? Do you know what's at stake? Have you read Romans 13? God appoints leaders. When's the election? November 6th? Is that when it is? Are we going to wake up on November 7th and either go, yay, God's in control, or man, God missed it. He must have been in Syria yesterday because this shouldn't happen. No, come on. We submit to the rules. Isn't it interesting? Peter tells his readers, submit to the government. Do you know who that was? That was Nero who lit Christians on fire. He says, submit to the government. Submit, be subject to rulers. 
A commendable testimony. Number seven, an accurate soteriology. We will just kind of fly high over this. An accurate understanding of salvation, soteriology. Verse three, for we also were once foolish ourselves. And that's in contrast to these to the, uh, the way he, that he's called people to live in verses 1 and 2. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We used to be like that. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us out of that, in other words. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness. Aren't you glad that's in there? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident this... This CD will probably not make it back to my, my sons. But I have two sons who I'm talking to all the time about this very issue. And I had a frustrating moment with one of them about a month ago where I said, son, you're, you're a very good Catholic. He says, what are you talking about? I go to your church. I said, no, you're, you're, you're a good Catholic. He says, what are you talking about? I said, you keep using a word that's so heinously Catholic he says, what word, what word, what word? I says, the word enough. Because he's always struggling with his salvation. And he says, I don't pray enough. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't witness enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not this enough. I don't obey my parents enough. When is enough? When is enough? Is there a point you get to and say, now God accepts me. You know what you've just said? I have been saved on the basis of my works. Be careful of the word enough. Be careful of the word enough. That's Catholic. We add our merit to Christ. It's Catholic theology. It's terrible. It's absolutely contradicted here. He saved us on the basis, not, not, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we will be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our soteriology is accurate. We, we believe in grace and in God's salvation for us, in spite of us, not because of our greatness and our good deeds. A healthy church understands salvation. A healthy church comes and sings the songs we've been singing and tears roll down our cheeks often and sometimes when we sing about God's mercy and grace that's not according to us. Come on, aren't you glad it's not according to you? Number eight, a defended unity. This is a healthy mark of a church, a defended unity. This is a trustworthy statement concerning these things which I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to, will be careful to engage in good deeds. These are good and profitable for men, but... Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Stop arguing. Be unified. What, where does that come from? Where does this arguing, this lack of unity come from? Look at this shortcut to church discipline. You know Matthew 18, right? The four steps. Well, there's a shortcut to that. And there's a man who needs to be rejected because of that and doesn't get the privilege of all four steps. He goes from step one to step four instantly. Watch this. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning and be self-condemned. There are two sins for which the church of Christ must be ever so vigilant to discipline. Immorality, because it tells the world that morals don't matter in the church. 
and factiousness. Pastors have no patience for factious men. Once factiousness can attach itself to a leader, you have mutiny. Reject him. Warn him. Warn him stronger and then kick him out of the church. You say, that's severe. That's, that's what Titus was told by Paul to do. There is no process of a few months where you work out a man. You say, how do you define a factious man? He's someone who doesn't believe what your doctrinal statement says that you believe and someone who is getting in people's kitchen to, have, to sow disloyalty to the leadership. That's a factious man. Deal with him severely. Deal with him quickly. Because factiousness will grow like a wildfire in a church. You know what's sad? Is I'm looking around at men who are nodding very, very sternly there because we've, we've sensed that, haven't we? Haven't we had those men? Be patient with people struggling with sin. Have no patience with a man trying to split your church. And number nine, lastly, shepherding care. I love how he closes this epistle. Verse 12, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. For I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently send, help, uh, and diligently help Zenos and the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking from them. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Here's what's interesting. He says in verse 14, people must learn to engage in good deeds. Good deeds is mentioned in verse 7 to be a characteristic of an elder. In verse 14, as a characteristic of discipleship. And chapter 3, verse 8, as an evidence of true faith. And now here in verse 14, as the ultimate way to encourage believers. We're, we, we, the, the Greek is so generic. Good deeds. Doing good things. You say, what is that? It obviously was something that Titus, uh, that Paul thought was relatively self-evident and intuitive. We engage in good deeds. Can I just say it in a way that's just overly simple? I'd tell my 12-year-old, Christians do good things to anyone and everyone. <laughs> this is a way of saying Christians are nice people. Our neighbors see us as as nice people, not arrogant snobs who, who don't share the grace of God with them. We do good deeds. Encourage them to engage in good deeds. It's further defined in verse 14 by meeting pressing needs. That's the whole book of Titus in just a few minutes. We need to spend way more than a few minutes in the book of Titus. So... Quick check, okay? That's the church. We're looking at the church. Now let's look internally at us. Do we have, a, do we have authentic faith? Do we recognize and nominate qualified leaders? Are we truly converted? Do we submit to biblical authority? Are we involved in the discipleship process? Is our testimony in the world commendable? Is our understanding of salvation articulated and accurate? Is our passion to defend the unity of the believers? And do we experience 
and receive and generate and give. Shepherding care to make sure Christians are engaged in good deeds and being like our Savior who is kind and meek and gentle, not like the jerk who is not like Paul describes. Lord's slave is not quarrelsome, not argumentative, kind, able to teach, patient when wronged. What would our communities be like if a church like this lived like that in front of them and amongst ourselves? Is our church, are our churches set in order? This is the paradigm. This is the blueprint for setting order in the church. Paul told the Corinthians, do nothing out of order. What does that mean? Do everything in order. What does that mean? Titus. That's exactly what it means. I'm thankful to all of you who came to the bold conference and pray that these sermons have served you in some way. But here's what I know. I'm a professional conference goer. I just go to so many conferences. And it's easy to take notes and enjoy. Don't stop. The great Christian myth is that when you've appreciated the truth, you've applied the truth. If you've appreciated biblical truth, you're not done until it's applied. And on your drives home, wherever it's near or far, have those conversations be about the application of what God has taught you through his word. Lord, we're grateful that you have called us to know what a church that's healthy acts like, looks like, and what it means for us to participate in such. Give us theological clarity. Give us strong doctrinal positions. Help us to know what we teach, what we believe, what we apply. And make us more. Make us more biblical. Because our default is to drift from that which you said. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.